Man, what a joy it is to be back with you. Uh, after I preached uh, a Sunday or so ago, went, went away on um, a leadership team retreat for our church planting network here in the area, and then uh, a men's retreat out, out in Utah that I was leading, and, and just a, a joy to serve in those ways. But, man, there's just nothing like being back with the family, the, the people of God, uh, your church, and uh, uh, Christ Church uh, together. Just so really grateful uh, to be worshiping with you this Sunday, and uh, particularly uh, as Chad welcomed the, the college students back. Really grateful for you guys. Uh, classes start tomorrow. I know you're psyched about that, all of you guys, uh, but grateful to be walking into that with you as well. We are closing out our Good, Bad, and the Ugly series. We'll head into the Gospel of Mark next week in, in a series called King's Cross. It's going to be a joy for the next 16 weeks. In the good, the bad, and the ugly, what we've seen is uh, the whole Old Testament, really the whole scriptures, it's a, it's a relational story. It's a story of relationship between uh, the living, loving God, who's mighty and holy, but is also Father and brings us in by His mercy. Between Him and, and between us, between us, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all the way back to Adam. Uh, when God says to Adam and Eve, I, I want a relationship with you and you can live and enjoy a relationship with me. And then they say, forget you and they run away. Then to Abraham and Sarah and, and how we looked at God makes this promise to, to, to make a new people and, and gives them this, this, this promise of a land, a seed, and a blessing for all of eternity that he's going to make them his people. He's going to bless them. He's going to bless everybody through them. And there's a lot of ugly in their story, too, along with some good and faithfulness. And then we see that God's people, they end up in Egypt, and they're enslaved uh, uh, after Joseph. And, and Moses brings them out, and we looked at Jethro and, and all this kind of way that God himself has, has made us his people. He's rescued us from slavery, and then he's given us gifts and empowered us for the work of the gospel that we were waiting for in Jesus. And, and then it goes a, a bit further, and we saw uh, the judges, and man, all the mess of judges. Man, that, that should have been called the ugly, the ugly, and the ugly. And then after that, we saw the kings and, and how there was Saul, there was David, there was Solomon. And, and God was kind of drawing his people back in. And, and, and there was this uh, seasons of faithfulness. They, they built this uh, amazing city in Jerusalem, this mighty temple Solomon builds that, that they would worship God. And they continually remember his sacrifices that, that were in need of forgiveness for our sinfulness. And they keep slaying animal and animal after, uh, after their sin and, and, and remember his mercy and his grace as, as animals die on their behalf as they come clean to God over and over again at the temple. And we looked at the kings together a bit. And, and then in, there's this time of exile. You know, Assyria comes in, then Babylon swallows them up, then Persia swallows them up. And, and we looked at Daniel and living a faithful life with our God. And now we're in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, from, from Genesis to Malachi, a story of the good, the bad, and the ugly, a, a bit of our story, and this loving, mighty, merciful God who longs for us, made us for a relationship with himself. It's a relational story. Knit together, tied together by his covenant promises that he'll always keep. A promise of relationship kept. And we're Malachi, 
And what we're going to see is what matters most is loving relationship with the living God. What matters most in this semester as you head back to school is loving relationship with the living God. As you get back into the regular rhythms of work and family life and what matters most is loving relationship with the living God. And that's often right what we've messed up. Malachi, I'm just going to tell the story of Malachi as he speaks to God's people, Israel, as they've now returned from exile. They've rebuilt a bit of the city and the temple. And Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this, The oracle of the word of the Lord to his people, right, to Israel by Malachi. Malachi is going to speak to God's people. This is all about relationship, us as people with him, our God. And Malachi is going to speak to the people of God at this time, Israel, as they're following him now back from exile. And this is where the book starts. I've loved you, says the Lord. But you, we say, how have you loved us? I love you, says the Lord. And we say, how have you loved us? Here's the circumstance. I alluded to it a little bit earlier. God's people who are carrying his covenant promises and promises that then spill over through them, through the Savior to come to all of us in Christ. God's covenant people have been exiled. They... You know, they were following him, kind of hit or miss with the kings. Uh, and then uh, the, the kingdoms divide into northern Israel and southern Judah. Southern Judah, God's people there, they're doing a bit better, but it's still kind of messy. They're going their own way. Then Assyria comes in and swallows up God's people, kills them, uh, takes them captive. And then Babylon comes in and swallows up Assyria. Then Persia comes in and swallows them up both. And, and God's people are left exile and kicked out of their homeland. Think Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, that kind of time. And they're longing to return. And, and then under Persia and Cyrus, uh, uh, these waves of exiles, uh, God's people return into Jerusalem. And they begin to rebuild things. Think um, Nehemiah rebuilding the wall of the city. Think uh, Ezra and reinstating uh, the practices and the priesthood and, and rebuilding the temple. Think Zerubbabel and kind of getting government going. And think uh, all this kind of return. And, and they've returned and they're there. And they're, they're thinking, man, we're killing it now for the Lord again. We're doing, look, maybe this is the time that he brings about his promises, that he keeps promising. He keeps promising us and never fulfilling Maybe this will be the time when we flourish again as his people. But they look around at kind of their return to Jerusalem, and it's kind of shabby. The temple's not like Solomon's great temple like it was. The wall is kind of broken down. And worst of all, they realize they're just not even fully living for him or enjoying relationship with the living God. And he hadn't kept his promises like they'd expected he would. So with their circumstances screaming in their ears, God looks at them and says, I have loved you, says the Lord. 
and we respond, how have you loved us? Now, this is the false narrative that will ruin relationship. Now, this is the false narrative that will destroy relationship between us and our God and us and each other, right? Has that ever happened to you? A false narrative gets running in your mind. It just ruins the relationship. You know, you text to a good friend. You're like, hey, I'm coming by. Uh, can I swing by uh, and have dinner? And they, or they respond, sure. And you get thinking, sure. What's that mean? <laughs> is that sure like, sure? Or is that like, sure, if you really want to, I'll see you again. And then that false narrative gets going, and, and it really starts driving a little bit of a wedge. And that's kind of a silly example, but, you know, you've got a family member, and they say something, or they do something, or they don't do something, and this narrative gets running in your mind, and you start thinking, oh, man, they're really mad at me about this thing that happened. And they said they were sorry, but they are still mad. I know it. And, and it gets going in your mind so much so that, that that relationship is deeply harmed between you and them because you're running in your mind a script and narrative that's just, just crushing the relationship. I, you know, I told you I was away for about a week. And the whole time, my wife is being amazing. I mean, she's really being amazing. We got six kids. She's running the whole household. She's, she's sending texts of all the fun things they're doing. And, and she's saying, go get them. I'm praying for you as you lead this leadership team retreat. She's like, oh, I'm praying for you in this men's retreat. Go get them. She's being awesome. Then I come home after a week. <laughs> And what I expect is like full embrace right away, like, oh, man, I'm so glad you're here. And I show up. I've taken the red eye home, so I'm a little tired. Oh, woe is me, right? And that night I say, hey, let's grab a glass of wine and talk about all that happened this last week and how great it was. And she's like, yeah, let's do it. Like, let's sit downstairs and do that. And, and so I... I Lay down in bed uh, for a second. She lays down there. The kids are all, all over. And, and then she puts them to bed. And, and then she goes downstairs to kind of wait for me. And I, I fall asleep. And about midnight, 1 o'clock, she wakes me up and she comes in. Now, here, I wake up and I start saying in my head, she doesn't want to spend time with me. She doesn't want to embrace. She doesn't want to be. She doesn't want to enjoy this path, talk about this path. She, she doesn't want to kind of re-welcome me. And I get all huffy puffy. And I literally am like kicking the sheets off the bed. I'm so mad. Yeah, it's pathetic, I know. <laughs> Flo called me out. She did. <laughs> She's like, you need counseling. We do, we do. We're in counseling. Because what happened in my head is this narrative of, she doesn't love me. She doesn't want to embrace me. She doesn't want to be with me. She probably actually liked it better when I was away, which might be true. <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. A false narrative uh, sets the course for a relationship towards disaster. And we do the very same thing with our God. And, and what matters most is a loving relationship with our living God, knowing how deeply he loves us. That we would respond with our whole lives as a life of love, loyalty, obedience, 
flourishing in relationship with him. But we've told ourselves, you don't love us. It's critical. It's what matters most. You know, when, when God is defining his people at, at the Exodus, he's going to give them a whole list of Ten Commandments to live by, uh, that they'll flourish in relationship with him and flourish in relation with each other. Uh, those Ten Commandments, we often think of, this is just rules to be kept. It's not about relationship with God, a living, loving God, but, but it's about rules to be kept. Where does he begin that in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1? Here's what he says when he's about to give these ways to live, these rules. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you hear it? I love you so much. I rescued you. I gave you life. You were in slavery, and I pulled you out of it. Uh, You were heading this way in your life and in your addictions to, to, to work, to drugs, to relationships, and I rescued from that. I gave you purpose. I gave you peace. I gave you life itself. I love you so much. But this narrative is created in our heads, which is completely opposite, which says, how have you loved us? You don't love us. You don't love me. Often it's one of two things. You know, it's circumstance. Uh, Like God's people, Malachi's time is about 400 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. Uh, uh, Like them, like us, circumstance sometimes says, life didn't go the way I wanted it to. Or I did not get the things that I wanted to get. Because of my circumstance, I can assess uh, because life is not going the way I want it to. I'm sick in this way. I don't have this relationship or that child. I, I have not ascended in my work the way that I thought I would. I, I don't have what I thought I would get at this point. So then we turn to God and we say, how have you loved me? You don't love me. The second way we do this is is we look at ourselves and we say, I have not lived up to the kind of person that God would love. I'm not obedient enough. I'm not, I don't share the gospel enough. I don't serve enough. I I don't do enough good things. I have to keep doing that he would love me. Or we look and we say, the things I have done, man, he is so disappointed with me. He's so ashamed of me. Uh, Due to circumstance or due to self, when God says, oh, I love you, we say, how have you loved us? You don't love us. Uh, Through the book of Malachi, we're going to skim through this. This this puts us and God at odds. This breaks relationship, this presupposition, this false narrative of he doesn't love me. So through the book, what we see is these five interactions, these how have you uh, loved me? And, and it comes out in these different kinds of ways that, where, where we are at odds with our God. He says, I am just. And we say, no, you aren't. He says, you must do this. And we say, no, we won't. Because under the, the, the foundation of our relationship is this presupposition of you don't love me. I know by my circumstance. I know who I am. And I know you don't love me. 
Okay, so let's uh, go through these five interactions where uh, they, the people of God, and we ourselves are at odds with our God often. And, and this was the area of uh, Israel's life at this time, about 400 years before Jesus. We'll, we'll see some of these are going to connect in your life and some are not. But how has this presupposition, this false narrative, shaped who you are in your relationship with your God? It may be in some of these very ways. Uh, the first is this, and they all kind of uh, start with that same kind of interaction. And this is uh, section uh, chapter 1, verse 2 through 2, verse 9, this, this uh, at odds with God in this area. And we'll be uh, in verses 6 to 7 of chapter 1 here. And we'll bounce from one to the next of these five at odds oppositions. God says, a son honors his father, and he's using this relational language between he and his people, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, to us. O oh, priests who despise my name, God continues, but you say, how have we despised your name? We're doing just fine. And now God points out, by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Would he even accept and show you favor for these kinds of offerings? So the first instance where God says, uh, because you don't believe my love is overwhelming for you, what you've done is you've given me the least and the worst and the lamest and the leftovers of your life. When you're, when you're supposed to offer these pure sacrifices of a lamb with, with, with a perfect two eyes, that one's got three. And he says, uh, that one is blind, and you bring it here. Because here's what you've done. You've gone to what you have, and you looked at it, and you said, I don't really care if I uh, do without that one. You have 24 hours of your day, and you don't give them five minutes. You got all these gifts, all these talents, and instead at work, all you do is work for yourself. You don't work for excellence and the glory of God there with creativity and give him the praise for that he is due. And you think your life is built on just about an hour and a half on Sunday morning. That's your sacrifice. That's your peace uh, to living for God. He says you've given me the least, the lamest, the leftovers of your life. Man, don't we do this one. He goes on. This is the next interaction where we are at odds with our loving God. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. We'll be in 13 and 14. And this is the second thing you do, he says. You cover the Lord's altar with tears with weeping and groaning because he no longer rewards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. 
We say, we're giving you these offerings, but why aren't you accepting them? And God looks right at us and he says, you've defamed my covenant of marriage. You're full of sexual sin. He says, don't you know I was there at the altar between the two of you when you made that covenant? And don't you know I really, I man, I wanted your kids to flourish in that relationship. I wanted you to love your wife and keep covenant with her. Yet you've been violent towards her in divorce. And you've been violent and destructive towards your kids that I wanted to flourish. As you said no to that covenant. He says, man, I'm out with that. Sexual sin, not keeping our promises, way over 50% of marriages falling apart, leading to divorce. Disaster for kids. Disaster for each other. Disaster for ourselves. And God says, don't you know that you're in this relationship to paint this picture of a, a loving, gracious God who keeps forgiving, keeps running towards, and you're defaming the picture. Don't you know that you're in this thing to raise up kids who would know and love me and serve me and follow me, and you're destroying the family. Don't you know that you're in this to give yourself away for your spouse, yet you're living so selfishly. He says, man, don't you know it flows from knowing how much I love you. But we're at odds with God with a false narrative and an underlying presupposition of a lack of love. The next at odds interaction comes in chapter 2, verse 17 to 3, verse 5. In chapter 2, verse 17, Malachi says this, You've wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied you? They're at odds, right? We're at odds by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he who delights in them and he delights in those who do evil. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You see what's happening here? We're slandering our God, often through our silence, not speaking up about who our God is and what he's done, how great he is. They say here, God, there's wicked people and you keep blessing them. You're no God of justice. Now he's going to answer them, and he's going to say, dang right, I'm a God of justice. Down in 5 and following, he says, I'm going to draw near to you for judgment. I'll be swift witness among the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker by his wages, against the widow, against the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Do you not fear me? He says, I'll show you a God of justice when I make all things right. I am a God of justice who cares about the people you trod on. It's just that you don't care about them. You overlook them. I overlook them. Yet we slander in our opposition to our God saying, you're an unjust God. You don't care about these people when we overlook them. Fourth interaction of five. Chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. Look at verses 6 to 8 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. I love this first line when God is speaking to us as people. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. I don't change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, you're not consumed. Oh, man, that's great peace in the midst of like all these awful interactions, right? Built on the presupposition of the lack of love of our God. From the day of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? 
Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, how are we robbing you, man? We're fine. We're doing great. Don't you see we rebuilt the temple? We're giving tithes. And... But you rob me in your tithes and your contributions. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. I'm going to open up the windows of heaven for you, pour down on you a blessing where there is no more need. You don't think I love you, so you withhold all you have. You're, you're giving just partial offerings. You keep the tithe that you ought to be giving. All through the Old Testament, there's this kind of this idea of this tithe to help the Levites run the temple of 10%. And then there's all these other things, all these feasts and all these other kind of extra givings. And, and if you kind of tallied them up by number, it's over 33% of what we have, right? He's like, give it all. And then Jesus comes on the scene. He's like, give everything you have. Because you have a loving God who's going to keep pouring out for your provision like you've never seen. And even God here says, yeah, put me to the test. Give all you can give and I'll outgive you. You're spending all your time saving for your security. Or you're spending all your time spending for your satisfaction. He says, man, you're not going to find either security or satisfaction in your, your saving and your spending. He says, you give. Man, you'll find both. Because you'll know the God who owns it all. I'll never forget, uh, just a, a year ago, we did this uh, Say Yes Generosity Initiative. And we said, everybody give all you can and take leaps of faith as you follow. Just say yes to whatever he's calling into for your giving and, and for your following of him by faith. And, and, and the body was just amazingly generous. And there were some favorite gifts. As I looked through these things, uh, there was like this one, there was a massive gift. And I was like, holy moly, over $100,000. I remember seeing that from this family being like, holy moly, somebody gave that from our family, what family in the church. And, and then there was this time, this guy who, who doesn't have a home. And he worships with us pretty often. He came up here. And to the offering, he, he put his 10 cents down. And then two weeks later, he did the same thing with 14 cents. That 24 cents, man, I know it costs that guy a ton to give that up because I've seen him outside on the streets. And I just thought, man, that guy gave from everything he had. It made me and Courtney kind of rethink, whoa, okay, we were thinking this number. What should we do, right? God says, if you knew how much you love me and how generously I provide for you, man, it would blow the socks off your giving. But instead, we, like as people say, how have you loved us? I see my circumstance. I know who I am. I don't think I'm lovable, and I don't think you're loving me right now. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 18 is this last interaction where God finds himself at odds with his people. 13 to 18. This is actually 3.18 here. Or 13 to 14. Sorry, this is 3.13 to 14. God says this. Your words, they've been hard against me, says the Lord. But you, we say... How have we spoken out against you? You have said, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping this charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? You have said that it is vain to serve God. You've cashed in your chips, you're out. You said he doesn't love us. Look at our circumstance. You, you said, he doesn't love us, I'm not lovable. You said, it's vain to serve this God. There's no return in following this God. You've given up and you're done. 
And you might even find yourself there this morning. Because you and I, we often start with that presupposition of that false narrative. When God looks at us and says, I have loved you, says the Lord, we say, how have you loved us? Uh, Why do you believe this in your life? Why are you wrestling with this idea in your life? You know, if you can't describe your relationship with the living God as that of a loving relationship, one where you're like, man, I love him. He's captivating who I am. He's got a a, a hold of my head and my heart, my whole life. I I just love him. I want to live for him. If we can't describe our relationship with him in those kind of terms, there's, there's some reason we're wrestling with, does he love me? Is he pouring his love and his mercy on me? Why do you believe it? Is it circumstance? Life hadn't gone the way you thought it would. You, don't, you didn't get what you thought you would at this point, so you said, he doesn't love me. Does it self? You kind of look at your life and you say, I'm, probably just, I'm not good enough to be loved. I know what I did. He knows what I did. And I know what I'm not doing. I'm not living up to the kind of person that that, that kind of God loves. How's it impacting your relationship with him, your relationship with others? Is it one of these areas of your, your giving, your marriage, your relationships? You're, you're giving up on God. You're even at that end of your rope. You said, it's just vain to keep following him. Maybe I'll keep going through the actions for the kind of the motions for a little while, but it's just, it's, it's vain. It's useless. Love is critical. It's the beginning of the Ten Commandments, right? Remember how I've loved you, God says. When Jesus wants to capture everything that this relationship is about uh, in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. This lawyer comes to Jesus and he's like, what's the most important commandment? What matters most? And, And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then love others. That's what matters most. When he captures what obedience is in John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Or whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. That There's this kind of a cultivation of our affections because we know what a loving God we have. Not just generally loving, but that his love is poured on us. He doesn't want to just kind of forgive us. He wants us. That's our God. I love it in verse 2 when they say this to God, when we say this to God. He begins to answer. <laughs> he begins the answer right there in verse 2 and 3. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, he says. Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. See, he goes back kind of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He reminds them of the promises, this whole relational story that's gotten him to this moment in, in Malachi's life when he's speaking to the people of Israel. He, he looks back and he says, you remember Jacob and Esau? Don't you remember Jacob? Man, what a deceiver. It's even what his name means. He's a heel grabber. He comes out after Esau. He's the second born. He shouldn't have any of the blessings. And God says, that's the one I'm going to bless. The least, the worst, <laughs> the deceiver of a son. I, I'll take him. 
And he says, Esau, man, you're kind of on your own. And if you read Obadiah and Genesis chapter 25 to 27, you see that kind of God withdraws from Esau, but he moves forward with Jacob and just blessing after blessing, not earned, but given by mercy and love and grace, all the way to the point where God just keeps holding his people, even when they keep running away from him, to, to through the exile to now when they're rebuilding this shabby city with a shabby temple, and they look at God and say, you don't even love us. And man, it must have shucked the core of his bones when he thought, don't you, I've been holding you this whole time. I've been loving you this whole time. It's the story of the scriptures. But he goes on, he says, I've been holding you this whole time. He tells, or he retells that story of Jacob and Esau. But then when he gets to the end of the book of Malachi, he brings back and he says, and actually it's going to get even better. He says, a day is coming. He says it in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, I'm going to send this messenger. He's going to prepare the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And he says, they shall be mine, he says, in this day, the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. He says, a day is coming when I am going to keep all my promises that were made way back then to you and to all of us now in Christ. A day is coming when justice is going to reign, when everything is made new. A day is coming. And then he ends the book of Malachi right here as if to foreshadow how great his love will be on that day. <laughs> and he says this in verse 5 and 6, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the, uh, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He says, this day has come. Now, this is about 400 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, this day is coming when Elijah, this mighty prophet, is going to come back and prepare the way for the Lord. And he even says in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, I am coming after that Elijah comes, and I'm going to come, and I'm going to make way. I, the Lord, am going to come, and I'm going to bring judgment, and I'm going to bring mercy. It's going to be this day that culminates in my judgment and my mercy when I set the stage for all of eternity. And then for 400 years, while they're all waiting for this Elijah the prophet to come and prepare the way of the Lord, it goes silent, right? No more scriptures written from Malachi to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But in the beginning of Luke, as everyone's anticipating, waiting, maybe actually they've just given up, they've cashed in their chips and said it's in vain to follow you at this point. The beginning of Luke chapter 1, verses 12, Zechariah and Elizabeth, this is kind of relatives of Mary who's pregnant now with Jesus. Zechariah is talking to an angel of the Lord who shows up on the scene. And Zechariah, verse 12 of chapter 1 in Luke, is troubled when he saw this angel and he fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. That's John the Baptist. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at John's birth, his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine 
or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many to the children of Israel, to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It says John the Baptist is coming, the spirit of Elijah. He's in Elizabeth's womb right now, Zechariah. It's going to be amazing when he's born. He's going to turn the hearts of us children back to their father, the Lord. It's going to be awesome. And, and, and John... A different John, John who writes the gospel, he takes this theological look at it in John chapter 1. This moment of Elijah's coming. John chapter 1, from all of eternity, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not a thing was made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God is writing this eternal, amazing story where we will be in relationship with him as he comes. And then there's this man sent from God, verse 6. His name is John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He says, this is the moment we are all waiting for when we say, does our God love us? Yes, our God loves us. He's not forgotten us. The prophet has come, and he's going to point us to the Savior. And then um, Jesus has something to say about John the Baptist, too. In Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, this is an amazing scene. Because John the Baptist is there, and much like the people in Malachi's time, look, John the Baptist is in prison at this point. He's about to be beheaded. Now, this is the guy who's going to prepare the way for the Lord, turn all the hearts of his people back to them. And John the Baptist is in prison, heading towards death. And he sends his, his friends to Jesus and, and his followers, and he says, Man, I thought this was him. <laughs> But you can almost hear in that question of like when his, his followers go over to Jesus and they're like, are you the one we're waiting for? You can almost hear that, that echo of, do you love us? Do you love my leader, John the Baptist? Right? He's in prison. He's about to die. The circumstances say you're not with him. This is not a part of your plan. Are you a God who can be trusted? Are you the God we're waiting for? Are you God here on earth to rescue us and save us? And they went away, and Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, John the Baptist. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, he's even more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and echoes of 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare the way for you. Truly, I said to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than this John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John showed up. And if you're willing to accept it, Jesus says, he is Elijah who is to come. You've been waiting, and here he is. You doubt my love, here I am, Jesus says. It's the story of a loving God running towards his people when we keep running away from him, 
saying, you don't love us. And he keeps saying, yes, I do. I'm here to save you. I'm here to bring a new day. The Savior has come. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 11 puts it succinctly. Because we all need to look the same place over and over again. I'll get to him. <laughs> over and over again when we question. Does he love us? Do you love us? Chapter 9 of 1 John chapter 4 says this. In this. The love of God was made manifest among us. Here it is. That God sent his only son into the world. So that we might live through Jesus. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. But that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a big word. Here's what it means. That the Father sent the Son, and, and that Son, uh, right before the Son came, John the Baptist, one everyone was waiting for for 400 years when they wondered, does he love us? And, and then he showed up and he said, here's the one who's going to prove he loves us, and here's how he's going to prove his love, how he's going to show his love, how he's going to reconcile a relationship between him and us. That Son's going to be a propitiation for our sins, big word, a satisfaction of the wrath of God. That in every aspect of our life, we keep saying, I want to live for myself. And so there's a wage for our sin that piles up. But God says, I'm going to pay for that sin with the death of my own son. A propitiation, a sacrifice in your place where he's going to hang on the cross in your place to pay for your sins. And this flips the whole paradigm of, am I loved by my God? See, see, we keep thinking, I've got to get better to be loved by my God. I've got to do better. I've got to do more. I've got to do less of that and more of this. If I just shared the gospel more, then he'd be pleased with me. I just served more at church. If I was just a bit more holy, if I didn't have to hide that aspect about who I am, then God would love me. Then I'd be pleasing to others. And God says, this is the love that you are pleasing to me already. You respond in obedience because he already loves you, not to make him love you. Most nights, this is Leo's seventh birthday, you get McDonald's ice cream on your seventh birthday. Most nights, I'll crawl into bed with Leo or Brooke, and I'll just say, hey, buddy. How much do I love you? And he'll say, a lot. And I'll say, not like how much? And he goes, a lot. And sometimes he'll do this with his hands. And then I'll say, who loves you even more? And he'll say, God. I'm like, that's right, buddy. And I'll say, how do you know? And he'll say, because Jesus died on the cross for me. Now, I don't think he gets all that right yet. But here's the reminder. Every time you question, oh, man, does my God love me? Because I look at the circumstances, it says otherwise. I look at myself and I say, I don't think so. I'm not lovable. You look right at the cross. 
where we are reminded weekly at least when we come before and we say his body was broken and his blood was spilled to make me a son and make me a daughter of God. To turn my heart to him as my father to say, uh, because I can look at him surely and say, you love me, I know it. How do I know it? Because look at what you did for me and your son. You want me that much. You paid for my sin as he hung on that cross. You gave me newness of life as he resurrected to life. You've made me your son and daughter. I want to follow you, though I keep falling short, and I'll do it more and more. I want to, I want to give all my money to you. I, I want to uh, honor you in my marriage relationship. I want to honor you in my singleness. I want to live for you at work. I want to live for you. Why? Because you love me. Because you love me. And I know it because I look at the cross. There's this crazy verse that says, and, and along with Jesus, he gave us all things. <laughs> then we can start listing them, his mercy, his grace to us. How he carried us in that time of suffering. How he gave us a car when we couldn't buy a car. How he gave us a, a place to live when we thought, where am I going to live? How, how he carried us to that class at school. How he carried us in every aspect of life. And he just kept piling on the blessings. I'm going to give you just a little bit of time to reflection because the, the first great sign of the covenant that, that I want us to remember this morning is this communion meal that, that puts our eyes right on Jesus and says, yeah, I love you because what I've done for you in Christ. And any who are his family are reminded of this weekly. And, and we just say, if you're trusting in Christ, would you enjoy what he's done for you? If you're not yet trusting in him, don't take communion, but this morning receive his love in the person of Christ. In prayer, just talk to him and, and receive the gift of grace he's poured out on you in Jesus. It's the first great kind of sign we'll look at today. So spend some time in reflection and thinking about how has he loved me? And being encouraged and compelled to obedience, to living in a loving relationship with the living God because of what he's done for you in Christ. And then after you've reflected for a little bit and you've enjoyed the love of God and the person of Christ and everything else even, as you're listing them out in prayer, as you, you think, man, you piled on all this too. After you've done that, we're, we're going to have a baptism. We're going to close out with a celebration of his grace, which is just another picture of, man, he's loved us. His son died for us. It's as though we died. And he's risen to newness of life, and it's, it's now we are alive in relationship with the living God. To what? To follow and to obey him the rest of our lives because of his grace, because he loves us. So in a minute here, we'll move into that sign and seal of the covenant of our God.